we have here on the podcast today uh brian becker and marley mcdonald they are the co-directors yes yes of, of y2k time bomb which is a documentary about the y2k uh purported crisis <laughs> wait james it's, wait. it's time bomb y2k time bomb y2k oh no okay you wanna, we could do it again or something yeah let's start okay let's okay start. we do we're pretty open with with anything but the title yeah we're gonna you know, forget exactly what it is don't worry about it. oh my god i've already fucked this up okay <laughs> <laughs> all right okay all right let's just start five four three and uh, today on the podcast, we have Brian Becker and Marley McDonald, the co-directors of Time Bomb Y2K, a documentary that will be premiering on HBO later uh, in 2023, but will be featured at the True False Film Festival this weekend uh, here in Columbia, Missouri, put on by the True False Film Fest and Ragtag Film Society. Uh, Brian, Marley, thanks for being on. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah. Yeah. So I got a chance to watch your film generously. Generously, you let me see it in advance. Um, I really enjoyed it. Um, I guess I would want to start by asking, what is what what? I mean, you know, you obviously had to put a lot of time and effort into a project like this. What what caused you to say this is the topic we're going to focus on to do something like this? Yeah. Sure. Um... And I, I'll apologize in advance for any moments at which Marley and I both respond at the same time, sure. uh, which I guarantee will happen over the course of this interview. After two and a half years of making this film, we still haven't <laughs> quite figured well, out how to time our responses on Zoom. But, but is the uh, is the focus of any good podcast, I think. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, anyway, the idea, I, my background, and, and also Marley is really is in archival filmmaking. Um, this is a directorial debut for us, but we both worked on a number of archival heavy films. Um, and I specifically, I've, I've worked a lot as an archival producer, meaning that I'm the person who on documentaries um, researches the historical footage that's utilized and kind of works with the director to creatively align it into some sort of narrative and then at the end clears the material. Um, so anytime I work on a project, I always bump into a ton of footage that isn't related to the actual project at hand. Um, so back in 2020, while working on a different film, I bumped into some footage of, of some news coverage of Y2K um, from the late days of 1999 leading into the new millennium. And it just kind of hit me that this was, you know, this, this major event from my childhood that I hadn't really thought about since it happened. Um, and the more that I dove into it, the more interesting it seemed. So, so after just kind of seeing it quickly, I quick, I, I G chatted Marley who I'd worked with previously. Um, and we knew we wanted to make a movie together. And this seemed like a potential, a potentially fruitful idea. So I kind of kicked it over to Marley for Marley's thoughts. And uh, we yeah. both talked a bit. Mar yeah, Marley, go ahead. Well, I was, uh, 
I was actually in my summer of what I was calling defining digital. So I was like obsessed with technology and mythology at the moment. So there seemed no, no better movie for us to make. Uh, and as we continued to research it, we realized like there was so much footage and so much to unpack about this topic. And immediately it was resonant to us. I mean, like the first images you find when you Google search Y2K are people waiting in line for gasoline and empty grocery store shelves. And this was 2020 at the height of the COVID pandemic. So we were, we were immediately taken with how like resonant the imagery that we were finding. Yeah. Um, you say you worked together or you've worked on others. What, what have you worked on before? We met while working on Matt Wolf's film, um, Spaceship Earth, which is currently streaming on Hulu and which premiered at, at Sundance back in 2020. Uh, yeah. Or was it? Yeah, in 2020. 2020, yeah. Yeah. And from, from that experience, Brian and I knew we wanted to work together. Okay. Yeah. So we were always on the hunt for, for the next movie. And this one was perfect. Yeah. yeah. So it was the it was the comparison to the imagery of COVID and this that, that struck you initially. Initially, yeah. Um, as we got further into it, we realized that the parallels were even deeper than just that um, the sort of impending crisis and the way that American subcultures and larger culture respond to that was really prescient to our present moment. And also just on an aesthetic basis, I think we both have a deep attraction to and, and connection to um, the footage from that time, being that we were kind of raised, uh, you know, we, we sort of came of age in the late 90s, early 2000s. And so this, this kind of this, this natural inclination for us to work with the the tape formats of the late nineties, but also the, the styles of clothing and the music and the disaster <laughs> movies. Um, and it felt like this somewhat sci-fi disaster movie-esque topic um, that actually played out in real life. So we, we thought that would be um, a really interesting challenge to embark on would be to take these, these late 90 movies, late nineties movies that we loved in our youth and, and use those to kind of inspire a documentary film that's crafted entirely from archival material. Yeah, I, one thing that struck me is I never really thought about the, because I, I think I'm a little older than both of you, um, never struck me that there was like a look to the late 90s, but clearly watching this, I, I, I noticed that when you showed a, I don't think it was Crossfire, it was another one of those CNN shows where both uh, like all the guys were wearing like these obnoxiously garish striped shirts, <laughs> obnoxious ties. And I was like, Oh man, we looked, we looked really ridiculous back then. <laughs> yeah. I mean, funnily enough, that is the exact touch point for fashion today. Like Y2K fashion <laughs> is, is everywhere. Um, yeah. we're, we're the sweet spot, you know, 20 years away from it where it's cool again. Yeah. Uh, if, I don't know if you've ever, if you search like hashtag Y2K on Instagram, you'll be blown away by the 
literally millions and millions of posts. It's but it, it's it's oh. not it's not specifically referencing the computer, but there's just a huge Im interest in kind of the the fashion <laughs> of the that. Butterfly, with the butterfly, yeah. With my crop tops. Yeah. It's like 16-year-olds who didn't live through it are, of course, obsessed with that 20-year-ago yeah. sweet spot. Um, anyway. Nothing about it seems very distinctive to me. I think maybe because I was, like, in college and you're just kind of, like, obsessed with your own, like, navel-gazing. So you don't <laughs> want to think about anything, like, from, like, the larger cultural perspective. I will tell you, and I'm not trying to make this interview about myself, but... Tell us. I, <laughs> a couple of years ago, I, was, I actually wrote a fiction book. And it was set in the late 90s, and the main character becomes obsessed with Y2K. And so I went, what? like, you show that Leonard Nimoy video. Mm -hmm. I probably watched that a dozen times because I was so intrigued by, you're talking about science fiction. They yeah. get the Star Trek guy. They get Spock mm -hmm. to go talk about, like, oh, this impending futuristic, like, well, are you going to be ready for this kind of thing? And he's, like, very serious and... I, you know, so I kind of went down that rabbit hole for like a month <laughs> <laughs> and I, I didn't, it didn't occur to me how much of that was out there until I, I watched all that. And then when I heard you all, had, when I saw this documentary was playing a true false, I thought, well, there's like a lot of really good material about it. I just didn't realize like how obnoxious everybody was going to look. <laughs> I've seen it all put together, but no, I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, we went we went way down that that rabbit hole that you you went down for a month, uh, <laughs> just emerging from yeah. exiting that rabbit hole after two and a half years of of being deep in it. Um, but yeah, we we that's one of the first things you find, you know, if you search Y two K on on YouTube, and we did we did go back and forth at length with uh, the director of that piece who lives in in nashville i believe um and we you know we love it i mean that that was one of the first things we found but it it, <laughs> I, it clearly made its way into the the final version of the movie yeah it's it's it is it is pretty fascinating and you know you kind of talk a little bit about like how it resonates now i mean one thing that struck me what i thought was probably the best part of your of their film was the media critique of it a little bit. Like to me, the theme of it was we're building up this panic. And then when nothing happens, we're like, well, did we, did, did everyone like kind of overstate the concern about this? I mean, that was like kind of like a very clear arc at the end mm -hmm. that everyone seemed like, oh, like there was no big deal here, but like it was being driven <laughs> by the same people who saying that there was no big deal now. I mean, is that something you, 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 I mean, I guess I, I kind of wonder how those themes emerge. Did you pick up on them initially and try to, you know, uh, you know, kind of develop that narrative? Did it kind of just emerge from your editing? I am kind of curious how that would that worked for your process. Yeah, I mean, so when we were first looking at this, and when you tell people you're making a movie about Y2K, people roll their eyes and are like, "Oh, I remember that. It wasn't real." So one of the <laughs> And people are really curious. They have this question, was it real or not? And I think one of the big takeaways from making this movie is that it was real on so many fronts. And the fact that it was like a real phenomenon in the media, it was a real thing, you know, like, like people responded to it. And so that gives it reality. 
But of course, we we discovered that there was actually a computer code error that was fixed. And the way that that translated out into the culture was something that we immediately knew we wanted to, to follow. How it became, you know, guys sitting in cubicles, realizing that we had a date error on our computers to Busta Rhymes addressing it, you know, on MTV. Right. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so so that idea that that people when we actually solve a problem that people look back on it and immediately question whether it was a problem is a really interesting phenomenon to us and something that I think we can learn something from today. Yeah. Right, because I I do think I mean we did spend a lot of money and there was a lot I mean I think a lot of the like the the economic um uh the economic um you know, prosperity that we saw in the late nineties was because of all of that investment. And then, yeah, you do think about like a proactive government. I, you know, Bill Clinton and Al Gore get their fair amount of criticism, but they did see it. It wasn't like, like, let's say when George W. Bush was looking at terrorism and deciding to like, just stay at his ranch and just letting, you know, (laughs) letting nothing and just letting a crisis happen. Oh, that sounded like I was starting to get into tinfoil hat stuff, but you know, but it is, but it is something to be said about like, you you don't recognize preventative steps. Exactly. Yeah. And we definitely wanted to, wanted to sort of unpack the ways in which we actually addressed an impending crisis in this country, um, which is something that, you know, we, we feel that the government did a great job of organizing and relaying information and making sure that this problem was tackled. Um, so how can we use what we learned from Y2K for the current impending crises that our country is facing? Right. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it, it feels like a very, we, you know, we limited for the most part the entire film to America. And it feels like a very American response to forget the, the $200 billion and the thousands and thousands of workers who, who put in time solving this problem immediately after nothing happens. It felt like a rare case in which we did in fact get ahead of something and managed to mostly solve it. Um, was it overhyped by the media? Yes, most definitely, but was it a real problem? Yes, that is true as well. So I kind of wonder, yeah, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it seems like we we are kind of the type of country that like reacts instead of like, you know, trying to address something in advance. It's it's tough. Um, so, yeah, yeah, but like, you know, I mean, like I just kind of wonder, like when you talk about all the footage that you were looking at, I mean, how much I mean, how, you know, I, I always think I'm fascinated about this from documentary filmmakers. I mean. How much footage did you look at? How much? How much <laughs> hours did you spend? <laughs> Hundreds, thousands. Where was it, Adam? Uh, I, I, I'd say we have around seven hundred hours of footage in the system, and we didn't. We had an amazing team who worked on this, um, and so people like our co-producer and archival producer Peter Nauf's our associate producer, Shelby Fintech, our AE, Katie Gonzalez, um, and our, our PA, Kishagra Carr, 
all did a great job screening footage. So someone on our team did watch every second of that. Um, And then as far as editing it, Marley, in addition to directing the film with me, edited it alongside Maya Mama. Yeah, I mean, I would say I think I watched I watched near 700 hours of footage. I mean, that was the first part of the process. And also why I am an archival editor is that I love watching movies. And so a big part of the process of this is just sitting down, screening the footage, and then whatever stands out to you. I mean, this is this is the beauty of archival filmmaking is you watch so much footage and then whatever resonates with you becomes what the story is. So we really let the archive drive what the film became. Um, and that sort of first initial pass, the task of just watching and realizing what's interesting to you and how to translate that into a scene is um, was what we did for the first like five months of the edit. Mm-hmm. How long did it take overall to make this film? Yeah. yeah. You go ahead. <laughs> well, Brian and, I, <laughs> Brian and I spent about a year, nights and weekends, meeting in my bedroom, researching this, talking about it, writing about it, watching footage, um, and cutting like an initial sort of short film about it. Um, and then we took another year in edit. So about two years, two and a half years. Uh, yeah, we're getting on two and a half. We're getting on two and a half. Uh, I think we're past two and a half, actually. Yeah, we actually might be getting on the three now. Yeah, we're getting towards <laughs> three. That yeah, we, we spent a really long time researching it and uh, just meeting and, and talking about it before yeah. we had the chance to make it. Yeah, a lot of a lot of meeting at each other's houses. We get off work on Saturday, go to Marley's house write grand apps for a few hours oh, right. <laughs> repeat the next day then work comes around you know our job jobs would start on monday and repeat and then eventually we we were so lucky that um hbo came on board so we were able to focus full-time with the team yeah wow okay so that when did they get when i mean so this wasn't like acquired at some other festival they got involved while you were making it yeah, yeah. we pitched it um to them and they took us up on it (laughs) this is actually it's our world premiere friday it's the first time this is ever showing in public um so we're we're you know it's the end as you now know it's the end of uh quite a long road although we have friends who've worked on their films for much longer than us because movies are premiering too um but yeah this is the first time the the public will We'll see this, and the first time we'll see it on a on a big screen. Yeah, this is yeah, this is going to be kind of a question I was going to ask towards the end, but I'll ask it now since it came up. Since you've already got a distribution deal, it's going to be playing on HBO. You've you've got you know a really big platform for. It. What do you see the benefit of this playing a festival like True Falls? Like, what do you hope that accomplishes for the film? Mm. Yeah. Well, personally. I love movie theaters so much. And it's always been a dream to make a movie to play in theaters. So since this is coming out on HBO, um, on the television station and streaming, we won't have the opportunity to release it to theaters. So this is sort of a chance for Brian and I to take it around and see it in different theaters um, 
across the world. And I think that we hope to just be able to, I mean, festivals are good for so many, so many things, but one of them is to just commune. And I think that that is a big goal of ours to just meet other filmmakers and be able to talk about our films. And also specifically, you know, True False is, is my favorite festival. I don't want to speak for Marley, but I, I would, I would, I think it's at least one of your favorites as far as programming goes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we love True False. I mean, we already have distribution and it's cool because it means we can solidly, you know, decide to premiere at the place where we, we want to show it the most that has programming that reflects our interests in documentary filmmaking and that continually shows kind of the most adventurous and most entertaining and most experimental films um, in the country and beyond. Um, and th this year's lineup is no exception. It's, we're, we're so, we, we didn't know the lineup until it was released to the public uh, a couple weeks ago. And, and sure enough, it again looks extremely, extremely impressive. So we're, we're super honored to be in the mix uh, this year and also to, to play it at the, the Missouri Theater on, on Friday for our world premiere. Um, yeah, to celebrate the film as well, because our whole team will be there. So it'll be a real celebration. Well, and Marley, if you've not seen the Missouri Theater, it's like a real old school movie. I've been Googling pictures <laughs> <laughs> and it looks yeah. amazing. Yeah, that's a palace. That's a movie palace. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess that's kind of interesting. You mentioned that, like when you're when you're at this festival, do you get a chance to see other movies? Or are you so busy, like just talking to people and being bothered by journalists? <laughs> I've got like, twi twi like some ridiculous amount of tickets for uh, this, <laughs> this this week and weekend. I'm gonna try to see as many as possible, um, and also, as Marley said, just spend time hanging out with friends and, and with our, our team. Um, we should also mention actually that, um, and I'm not sure when the, the podcast is coming out, but we're we're also appearing with our team at the um, Based on True Story conference on- Thursday, March. Thursday, <laughs> not Wednesday. We're flying out Wednesday, Thursday from 11.30, a.m. until 1.30 a.m. ourselves and um, our team who we mentioned before and our executive producer Penny Lane will be attempting to uh, cut a, an archival scene about a topic that we do not yet know. The, the students at the Missouri Journalism School will be choosing some topic for us to make a film about Whoa. and then we'll try to make a short film slash scene in the course of two hours in front of a live oh. audience, which should be a, an adventure, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Might be a disaster, but we think it'll go well. It should be an adventure, yeah, we'll yeah, see. Yeah. <laughs> where is that, where is that, is, is that here? Where yeah, is that? It's in Smith Hall, I believe is the name at the, the university. On, on campus, oh, I see. So you're gonna be here early, you're gonna be here before the film, premieres on friday yeah yeah okay. coming in on wednesday okay uh oh that's really exciting 
Um, yeah, I, I their, their documentary, uh, their documentary, uh, the, the Reynolds Institute of Journalism, their their documentary uh, um, program is really impressive. So hopefully, uh, that's you'll get to get to that'll be a really good experience for them and you. Yeah, uh, very excited. Yeah. Now, I kind of I wonder I wanted to go back to a little bit about your your process and your method here. I mean, one thing that kind of interests me, I've kind of gotten fixated on, you know, whether or not documentary filmmakers use talking heads or not to use as interviews. And you don't really like seek out your own interviews here. I mean, was that just because of your background with archives or was there another did you have some other, did you, you know, what was the kind of thinking behind that decision to just go purely with the with the footage? Yeah, it was always a it was a goal we set out on from the beginning of the project. Um, although, as Marley mentioned before, you know this this film we we didn't go into the film with any um, overriding notion of what the narrative or the plot or the characters would be. We we kind of discovered that from um, researching and screening this huge collection of archival, but we did have extensive discussions at the beginning uh, about formally what we wanted the film to look like. And a part of Y2K being such a major media phenomenon, um, a part of what that allowed was, was that there was coverage of it almost every night on every network. And so because of our background in archival filmmaking, we were we were kind of able to suss that out early on and know that we had this extensive body of footage to work with that proceeded on a chronological um, timeline. And so we didn't just have, you know, like special interest pieces or or, or news uh, anchors giving, you know, quick thirty second hits on Y2K, but also in depth interviews and. Um, background pieces, and we found a bunch of foreign documentaries because many European nations were interested in the American dimension of the Y2K problem. And so we always intended for this to be all archival so that it was as immersive as possible um, for viewers. And, and it also allowed us to, as you mentioned earlier, include this this level of media critique um, that we thought was most interesting to just set up by allowing various forms of media to play alongside each other rather than bringing in some, you know, professor of media studies to provide uh, an exact 2023 assessment of exactly what happened here. Um, and, you know, there were times where it was a real challenge um, Marley and Maya did an incredible job editing this into a coherent narrative. Um, I, I think it flows very smoothly at this point. And I, we, we've heard from early viewers that at times they don't even realize that there are no talking heads, but we, we, didn't, we didn't film anything. We didn't record anything. Um, yeah. we, we didn't shoot any sneaky recreations. Um, we, we tried to... <laughs> We tried to keep it all archival. Yeah, I think that our initial like resonances to the footage and to the aesthetic also led us to that conclusion that we wanted to create this sort of time capsule effect, which we were fortunate enough to be able to do because there was so much media out there. Um, and we think it really 
it really allows viewers to be in that moment and to watch it unfold the way that you would have in the 90s. Were there any other like, you know, you kind of talk about your initial what that was the one thing I picked up on. Were there any other like ground rules that you established for the film when you're initially talking about it? Any other what ground rules? Ground rules, yeah. That's a really good question. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that very early on in our process, we read a really important essay by a woman named Andrea Tapia, who had it embedded with um, different subcultures um, during the Y2K phenomenon. And that really drove our interest in examining the way that subcultures um, like responded to this issue. And um, that allowed us to sort of find these major topics that we wanted to cover. So that's what led us to look into how militias responded to it or doomsday Christians and their response to this. Yeah. Um, so that was like an early, an early, I don't know if it's a, if it's a ground rule or if it's a rule, but that was something that really took us um, by surprise that it was such a major, you know, major for these groups. It's yeah. a really, it's a really interesting question. I, even the all archival thing wasn't like a hard and set crowd <laughs> rule. You know, we were prepared if it wasn't working to throw our hands up and try something else. I think even when we started, we were thinking we might shoot a little bit of of stylized recreation um, if needed. We always thought that might be a possibility, but we were lucky enough to to put it together and, and not need to do so. Um, yeah. I think otherwise we just had kind of a certain ethics of, of how we wanted to make this film and an ethics of, of how we, despite not filming with individuals, we, we, we created relationships with um, all of the main people in our film. Mm -hmm. um, and so even though we didn't film them on camera, we did interview them at length and, and go back and forth with them over time um, regarding their stories and their experiences of Y2K. Um, and many of these individuals provided us with personal footage. So we wanted to respect that decision and respect their, their participation in the film, even if it wasn't in front of a camera, they, they still participated in that they shared stories with us. Mm -hmm. And also uh, in certain instances shared uh, material as well. Oh, yeah, we did in fact do many interviews. We just didn't film or record them and incorporate them into the into the film. May, but just uh, kind of like for your research and to find more material, and that was the focus of the of the interviews. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, as far as our our vision from the start goes, I think, I mean, all archival was a big part of it. We knew that we wanted to have animations in this film because that's something that immediately stood out to us about the '90s. Is is how this very specific computer generated animation kept showing up in all of our footage. And so we were really attracted to leaning on that medium to tell parts of the story that we might be missing in our archival. So that was an early uh, vision for the film as well as the music being really propulsive and important to the narrative. Um, both Brian and I really like music from the 90s, specifically electronic dance music from the 90s. And so we had always envisioned a film that used music sort of like a DJ set, 
um, to propel the narrative. And I think that when we came across Nathan McKay's music and uh, created that collaboration, that our film started to like open up in new ways, ways that we had hoped that it would. And it far exceeded, I think, what we imagined for the film. And I'll, I'll say our animators were also amazing. Cole Cush and Tom Goulet really nailed the perfect balance of present day animation techniques uh, with the flair of 90s animation, computer generated uh, looks. Yeah, those guys were amazing. Yeah, it's fair. We, have, we only have a few, but we, we really, that, that is the one non-archival <laughs> element of the film. We have a handful of uh, what we think are really amazing animations. <laughs> yeah. It did remind me a little bit of the animation from Fight Club, some of it. Mm, yeah. It's yeah. subtle in that movie, but it did remind me like of like the very like moving fast and kind of, you know, getting in very granular details of things. Mm -hmm. and that was, uh, I, I wasn't sure if that was an intentional, I guess that is an intentional. Yeah, lesson. yeah. We we took inspiration from a lot of 90s sci-fi movies like Hackers and Lawnmower Man, all of which really rely on it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, silly movies that we love. <laughs> the way that 90 movies talk about the internet is so strange because it feels like a very real place when they talk about it. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, that's something that we really wanted to actually show. We, we were really kind of um, engaged with this idea of the physicality of the internet and trying to show that. Yeah, yeah, I, it, it comes across. It comes across. Um, yeah. So, and I mean, and like, I guess, you know, now, I mean, cause I was, I had like a very specific thing in my head when I was watching it, but like, I mean, why do you think now, like, what do you hope that audience, like, you know, you think about this having been 22, 23 years ahead uh, from when this happened? I mean, what is it, what is it about this that you hope people get from this movie now? Why now? I guess would be the, the easier way to phrase that question. For this movie yeah i think y2k fell uh a really interesting part point um in our the, the relationship the history of our relationship to computers and to technology um and so you know we're 23 years on from that now and not just computer technology but related but also kind of the way we face various existential threats um, was something we talked about a lot while making this film and the means by which we relate to um, each other in the face of these threats, the means uh, by which we relate to technology and turn to technology in the face of these threats. Um, I hope that the movie makes people think about those relationships and think a bit about whether in the future things might be could be a little different or, or make the future feel slightly less predictable in some ways. Yeah. But you mind? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, apocalypse stories, the end of the world story has been around since the beginning of the world. And so kind of choosing this moment to examine the apocalypse story is something like our present moment as a time to examine the apocalypse story as we're being filled with, you know, or, or like 
inundated with stories of how our world is going to end. Um, it was just worth examining to us this, this other time, this very recent time that we felt that way. And especially a time that we felt that way in relationship to technological progress. Yeah. Yeah, it feels like the, fir the first apocalypse of the, the first potential apocalypse of the computer age. Yeah. Um, of the internet age. Of the internet age, pardon me. The first. Yeah. And, and no one's, no one's written a book on it and no one's made a film on it yet. And we think it's so ripe for analysis and contains so much meaning for the, the, the issues of our present. Um, yeah. And so that's, that's really, you know, why we worked on it and why we're glad we worked on it. The first apocalypse of the, of the internet age might be my title for my, <laughs> that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Feel free to take that one. Okay. <laughs> I'll put it in quotes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was that was also something that drove us to this story is watching how people on the early internet communicated about these ideas. I mean, so many of the characters that we chose to examine had their own websites um, and filled them with their own ideas of what we should do about this problem. And that was really interesting to trace sort of on like a, a macro level, like who was reading whose blogs? <laughs> <laughs> um within within yeah. the y2k community is really right. interesting yeah well and it's also you talk about like relating it now i i noticed you had some very i don't even know if it's subtle but some nice allusions to like putin being put into power like right when this was happening mm -hmm. <laughs> and now yeah. that that is a crisis he is kind of you know creating a crisis and uh, you know, you're just sitting and talking about Osama bin Laden and like how like these future actors like kind of were going to come into play later. Um, yeah. And, and the optimism of sort of, you know, Jeff Bezos and and Steve Jobs and Bill Gates yeah. at that moment, they were allowed to be optimistic in a way that, that I, I don't think I'd ever seen any footage of Bezos that, that long ago. That was another interesting thing to me. I'd never seen him look like that <laughs> yeah 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 on a vhs camera like yeah a university of michigan professor who made a local access show in the 90s about technology that's mm -hmm. where that was from that's where that one was from yeah it's yeah. Kind of amazing so interesting. wow yeah 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 we tried to put in little you know, we didn't want to overwhelm people with with statements about the resonance to the present or or talking heads talking about how relevant it was to the present. But we did include little little markers and little, you know, guiding hands um, to to ensure that that viewers kind of realize how how relevant uh, Y2K still is to us as a society. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, well, I, I've kept you longer than I'd hoped, but this is really fascinating. <laughs> uh, I, I think your movie's great. I really um, am looking forward to people seeing it. Uh, and I think it's going to have like, I think it's just so great that you all got HBO to put this on. I mean, they're going to, that's going to be such a huge, that's going to be a huge deal for you guys. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Coming out in December. So yeah, a while. Will there be other film? Are you going to other festivals or what, what are you doing with this film until then? Yeah, we'll be playing um, festivals around the country and around the world, but I don't think any have been announced yet. 
So we, okay. uh, <laughs> yeah. we, we can't say yet, but keep an eye out for it and, and hopefully it'll play for, for those not based in the Columbia area. Hopefully it'll cultural area. Mecca of mid-Missouri. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, yeah, no, this is great. Uh, Brian, Marley, thank you uh, for your time today and thank you for making this movie. Oh, thank you so much for, for watching it and your kind words and having us on. Yeah, yeah, thanks so much. And yeah. if you're around this weekend, come say hi. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I will I will try. Yeah, especially I mean, I know I, I'm gonna try to see like individual movies. Like I didn't buy a pass because I wasn't sure how much I was gonna get to use, but I'm gonna try to see there's some some other movies I was interested in seeing. So I'm gonna try to catch that stuff. But if I'm around the Missouri Theater, I'll I'll try to like, you know, I'll try to sneak into the QA and <laughs> more of a comment than a question as they like to do with those things. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you can yeah. just play this interview over the mic oh yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll play. Then we can just leave. yeah 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 save your questions just go to the film snobs podcast yeah okay <laughs> exactly <laughs> all right yeah Th thanks again